How are we all doing today? Everybody having a good summer so far? Just get myself organized here. All right. So, we're almost done our sermon series, Journey to Jerusalem. I know it's been a, a number of weeks now, but it's been exciting to see how Jesus has been approaching um, his final destination, where he knows he's going to end up, taking on the sin of the world, going to the cross, and we get to experience those steps leading up to his final days um, on earth and during his earthly ministry. So where are we at in the journey so far? So if you haven't been with us through our sermon series in the last little while, um, we've all been leading up to uh, this point now where Jesus is actually at Jerusalem now, at this point. So um, he's uh, continuing to narrow his focus and his purpose as he really hones in on who the Messiah is and what his role is when when he fulfills that Messiah prophecy, becomes the Savior of the world. And back in Luke 19, we got to actually, we, we jumped ahead back on Palm Sunday, and we, we did Luke 19 early, but we, we read about that triumphal entry into Jerusalem, right? And Jesus' arrival was met with celebration by some, right? You know, all the Hosanna, the palm branches, declaring him the Messiah, and the religious leaders also opposed him and opposed his claims and they tried to dissuade his disciples from, from, from telling people about him. So, what is Jesus' reaction to that? Well, it turns out, now we know later on, he's quite upset. He's quite angry with those who oppose um, that he is the Messiah. But initially, his, his response in Luke 19 was to weep for Jerusalem. He's sad that they're destined for destruction, that they're going to miss out on who the Savior is. He says, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. This is when he comes in and he cleanses the temple. He finds that people have been doing business in the temple and not the best type of business, business where they're trying to take advantage of people and make money for themselves, all taking place in the temple. And so this is kind of setting the stage for our sermon today. And as we think about this, this picture of Jesus coming into the temple, we have that, that famous picture of Jesus flipping over tables, right? He's mad, righteous anger. He's, um, he's taking it out, and he's, dis- he's disturbing what they're doing. I'm just going to click ahead on this, okay, Peyton? Hopefully it works. Is that you or me? Me, okay. So, and it says this, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. So we see, we see how it's set up. The, the religious leaders, they're out to actually kill him. They don't believe his claims. They want him gone. And last week, Tom started chapter 20 looking at the battle between the religious leaders and Jesus that starts to take place here, and we're going to continue that today. And I think last week, if I'm right, I think the score was Jesus 1, religious leaders 0. I think he got the upper hand. 
So we continue the battle today, round two, if you want to call it that. Ding, ding, ding. So we pick it up in verse 20 of chapter 20. This isn't working, so you've got to do it. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. All right, so this is their plan. They're going to plant people in the audience to pretend to be his followers and look for ways to throw him off. So the spies questioned him. They said, teacher, we know you speak and teach what is right, that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And here's the question. Here's their, stum- their, their trick. They're trying to trap Jesus. Here's what they say. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And if you remember, Todd preached a, f- a couple weeks ago, and he made the point that the whole subject of taxes was quite polarizing in the culture. It was, it was a big deal at the time. New tax laws were put in place. Collecting the taxes was quite strict. The tax collectors themselves were ruthless and often corrupt. And so, what you had was kind of like a Robin Hood scenario where the people needed uh, relief from the taxes, and they wanted someone who was going to fight for them, and then you had the government who was trying to make sure that it was enforced, right? And so, they, they set up this trap question because it's, it's a, it's a lose-lose. If he says, yes, pay your taxes, then uh, the people will be against him. And if he says, no, don't pay your taxes, just follow God, then he's going to be in trouble with the government, right? So what does Jesus do? He chooses option C. He saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public and astonished by his answer and they became silent. So, the trap was set. Jesus wiggled his way out of it. And like Pastor Tom said last week, if you want to know how to argue against people that are trying to trap you, pay attention to Jesus, because he's an expert at it. And, it's, and both Tom and I are in agreement on this, that uh, he's a good person to, to look at. Now, we're going to look at Jesus, we're going to look at this, uh, the coin, Caesar stuff in this, but the first, thing, the first point I want to make is that if you want to know Jesus, and our goal as Christians is to know Jesus deeper, to know Jesus more, and to follow him with our life, right? How do you do that? How do you know Jesus? How do you know who he is? How has he revealed himself to us? And the, the very uh, easiest way to do that is to know your Bible, Jesus is known through the scriptures. He's made himself known through the scriptures. It's the living word of God. This is my first point today, and it's going to come through as I share how the scriptures fold on themselves. The scriptures are always using other scriptures to make the points that they're trying to make. Somebody who knows the scriptures, when they read a passage or a long chunk of scripture, they can see how it starts to draw from other places in the Bible. So we, our, my first point is, know your Bible. Read your Bible. And I will share with you, too, that this is something that I think we all can do better. I've, 
almost everyone I talk to, I, I, unless they're not telling me the truth, is like, yeah, I could read my Bible more, right? And standing up here preaching, it's humbling, you guys, because when we prepare these things, it's just as much for us, it's just as much for me as it is for you. So let's be in the Bible more. That's my first point. Now, let me, to, to sort of illustrate how the Bible uses the Bible, I'm going to show you a little picture here. I don't know if you've ever seen this picture before. This is like an, an illustration of all the cross-references in the Bible, like a scripture talking about another scripture, like from, the, from Genesis 1 to Revelation, the end of the Bible. Cross-referencing is huge in the Bible. When something is spoken or said in the Bible, the people who heard it often would, would, would know where it came from. And that is the case in this passage. So he starts, the first question he asks to, to throw off the, the, the religious leaders is, can, can you give me a coin? Can you give me a denarius? So let me show you what the denarius looks like. Something like this. There it is. Um, so it, it's roughly something like this. Uh, I, I, I read up on it. It would bear the Caesar's image and the goddess of peace with an inscription on both sides that read Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, chief priest, right? So it's literally saying divine, like Caesar is God, basically. And this was pretty, pretty common in that era to say that Caesar is basically your God. So it literally is like him or me is how it's kind of set up. And so Jesus says these words. He says, whose image and inscription are on that coin? That's important. That cross-referencing I'm talking about, he's talking about scriptures that the people listening, because they knew the first five books of the Bible, like the back of their hand, they called it the Torah or the law, they would know and they would think of something when he said those words, image and inscription. Image is pretty obvious, this verse here, um, very common passage, let us make mankind in our image, said God, in our likeness, right? So they would think the coin's image, he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God's what is God's, what is God's? Not, not our money, not our coins, not our things, but us ourselves. We actually bear the image of God. So let Caesar have the, the stuff that fades away, that is part of this world. And in fact, Jesus is not um, anti-government. Jesus is not anti-taxes or anti-this and, and, and anti-that. There's plenty of scriptures that instruct us to pray for our government, to follow our leaders, um, as long as they're not directly going against the decrees of God, but to, to support our society. And if Caesar was giving them good things in society, they should support that. But they don't, Caesar doesn't get our heart. Caesar doesn't get their hearts. What about inscription? That one's a little bit less clear. There isn't a particular verse that, that comes to mind for inscription, but there's a couple that I think people would have thought of. The first is Exodus 13.9 which says, like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead, that is the law of the Lord to be on your lips. They knew, the Jewish people knew this one well. How do we know they knew it well? 
because they actually have this really ultra-literal way of following this, um, where they'll, they have little miniature five books of the Bible printed in a box, and they actually stick it on their arm, and they stick it on their forehead when they go into certain prayer services. So they're literally trying to do a sign on your hand and a reminder on their forehead. Um, I, I think they're missing the, the point there a little bit. It's um, more of a metaphor, and... The point is that the law of the Lord is to be on our lips as if it was on our, on our hand, which is the things that we do, and on our mind, which is the things that we think. So I think the image and inscription. Here's a second one for inscription. Ezekiel 11, 19 to 21. This is a famous prophecy that says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those hearts, those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. I think we want the new heart not the heart of stone. I think we want the desire to follow God's decrees. I don't think we want to bring down destruction on our heads. There's a big difference between us and the religious leaders in the text in that they held to those first five books of the Bible as their scripture, and maybe the prophets as well. We would disagree, and we would hold to the Old and New Testaments as our scripture. And we want to have those on our hearts, on our, in our minds, and metaphorically on our hands and the things that we do with our lives. Prophecies about the Messiah, that's the Old Testament. Fulfillment of those prophecies, that's the New Testament. And this is the point Jesus is trying to make to them. Throughout history... There's always been people who have tried to dissuade followers of Jesus from believing in him. There's always been people who have preached that Jesus is not who he says he is. He's not 100% man and 100% God. He's only man. That's one of the things that's been refuted and taught. So it's not new in our culture that we are suddenly hearing a lot more opposition to Jesus. It may be a, in, in our short history that we've lived on this earth, it might be a shift in our culture away from Christian values or, or centered on biblical truth in our culture. But in the grand scheme of things, we shouldn't be surprised. Because if our culture doesn't actually have a relationship with Jesus himself, why would we expect them to behave like Christians? And while it's noble to stand up for causes that we believe in in our culture, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to see godly things happen in our schools, in our society, and we can stand up for those things, I think the danger for Christians is that we can come across as attacking people's behavior and wanting their behavior to change when it's their heart that really has to change, right? So it's a bit of a misplaced 
sadness. We're sad. We're sad about our culture when we see things going wrong, when we see things going downhill, right? That makes us um, sad for, for the people around us, the people that don't know God. But we have to be careful not to misplace that sadness and make sure that we're sad that people need to know Jesus. People need to know Him in order to be changed and want to follow His ways. So, one produces sitting back and judging the culture, and I think the other produces an active sharing of God's love and good news to people. When we want them to meet Jesus, we have to bring them, bring Jesus to them. Okay, so the next section of Scripture, that's, this is the first story, the first attack or, or test. So now, what, what's the score? Two, nothing? I think they're up. Round three. The next group to test him are the Sadducees. So let's put that scripture up there. So, have you heard that word before, the Sadducees? So, there, it says right in the first line there, um, they say there's no resurrection. So that's their thing. They don't believe in the resurrection, not just Jesus' resurrection, but like, resurrection of the dead into the, into the next life. They don't believe in spiritual things like angels and, and stuff like that, which is sad, you see. <laughs> My dad's here. <laughs> Dad joke. <laughs> All right, let's carry on. <laughs> Some of the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So there were seven brothers. First one married a woman and died childless. Then the second and the third married her, and in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Okay, so this is kind of a, it comes across as a bit of a curiosity question, um, like, honestly, if you think that the resurrection is true, like, what happens here? But it's a, I guess it's a little bit of a trap as well, just trying to stum- make him stumble. Not sure how to answer. Oh, I never thought of that. Like, that doesn't make sense. But he's, he's quick, and he, he doesn't get snared, doesn't get thrown off. He says, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. For to him all are alive." This is an interesting passage, actually, because I think we sometimes like to, to, to ponder what eternity is going to be like. What's it going to be like in heaven, right? Am I going to know my friends still? Am I going to see my spouse? Am I going to see my kids? Um, all that stuff, right? It's curiosity stuff. And there's a sentimental part of us that wants maybe our family to be a family in heaven. And the, the research on this shows that marriage isn't necessary in heaven. Marriage, there's no need for procreation in heaven because all eternal beings end up in heaven and just are eternal there. And 
our limited understanding of being here on earth would make us sad. Like, oh, I'm not going to have my spouse. I'm not going to have my kids there. I'm not. But that's our limited understanding. And the research on this says that we're going to be blown away by the depth of brotherly, sisterly relationship, friendship, and Christian fellowship that we experience with all saints when we get to heaven. You get to ask questions to Moses. See what he was, was up to. You got all eternity. Like, make sure you go to all the guys in the Bible, all the people in the Bible, and ask them questions, right? Like, line it up. I've been waiting to talk to all of you. Right? So we're going to have, we're not going to have marriage the same way or family the same way. We're all going to be family with none of the awkwardness that we experience in society and interpersonal uh, conflict and, and uh, insecurities and anxieties that we have. It's all going to be gone. We're going to be friends and family with one another. So, some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. And no one dared ask him any more questions. What's the score now? Three, nothing. Absolutely. Um, No one asked any more questions, though. They didn't want a round four, but that didn't stop Jesus. He just went for it. He's going to take the lead further. So, the next section, verse 41 to 44... It's a shorter one. He just goes on his own and says, why is it that the Messiah is the son of David? This is important because that was a way in which these people uh, viewed him. They called him the son of David for a reason. And prophetically, yes, he is referred to in, in Scripture as the son of David because he, came, he was to come from the line of David and to, to take up the throne of Israel. But... What people wanted was a person who was going to basically fulfill what David was doing, like the king of Israel to lead the army and conquer everybody and make us a whole nation again. But he says, David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? So Jesus is like, he's, I'm not just David's son. Yeah, I'm a son of David's line, but I'm David's Lord. Like, I'm going to do far greater things than David ever could do. So, Jesus here is kind of blowing up people's expectation of what the Messiah would do and be. They wanted a little Messiah to do what they wanted for their little nation, to conquer the way they saw fit, and to to make right the things in their limited scope of vision. They had him in a box. This is where you're going to fit, Jesus. This is where I'm going to allow you to work. And I think this is a pretty common thing that people do. They put Jesus in a box. This is the area that I'm going to let you touch. This is the, uh, the, the things that I'm going to do for you. I'm, I'm comfortable here. I've got plans. I've got a career, dreams. I've got vacations. I've got things I want to see. Right? Like, don't shake things up. I need to make that happen. Stay in your box, Jesus. But the Messiah doesn't fit in a box. So what box do you put Jesus in? How do you limit Jesus' work in your life? Where is he trying to stretch it and break down the walls of that box? That leads us to the last small section of this scripture that we're studying today. 
which says, while all the people were listening, Jesus said to, the, to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses. We'll get to that in a minute. It's a bit odd. And for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So, just so you know, anytime the Bible says beware or woe to you or those types of things, really pay attention to that. <laughs> those warnings are out there because those are things that people tend to do. And we want to not do those things. So, there's a lot of financial things that are going on in, these, in, in chapter 19 and 20 of Luke. Things with our, I've, I talked about this the last time I preached, actually. It was also in the last passage that our finances are a direct indicator of our values. Finances and the things we put our money towards will show what we love. And Jesus is encountering the people of the temple and realizing that they value themselves. They value their positions. They value their safety and the little box that they have for, the, for, their, for what's right in front of them. And they're probably, um, when it comes to widows and devouring their houses, what that probably means is that they're in charge of the estates when the man passes away and they're not caring for the widow of the estate. They're taking that and putting it back into the system, the system they have worked out. And so that actually goes directly against an Old Testament directive that they would have known to care for the widows in society. So it's quite a, quite a serious indictment against them that Jesus brings. So what are we to be like then? If we're not to be like that, what are we to be like? Well, we shouldn't have a, a, a displayed faith that's for show and then a whole bunch of sinful actions that we do every other time when we're not on display, right? We shouldn't have like a, a, a separated life like that. That's called hypocrisy. Our culture doesn't like hypocrisy. We don't like hypocrisy. We don't like seeing it in people that we put in places of importance in our culture. And the people around us don't like seeing it from Christians. That's one of the things that's the biggest slam against Christians is the hypocrisy, right? You say you love Jesus and then you do this. So our faith should line up with what we say, what we speak, that we believe. And the biggest one is, we need to continue to believe in the resurrected Jesus and not be swayed by people who try to convince us otherwise with well-crafted words and things that seem to line up better with our culture and make it easier to, and more palatable. Belief in Jesus can make things uncomfortable for people, but we have to believe in Jesus. And then the last thing is to know him, to have a relationship with him. We won't want to behave in the ways that he wants us to behave unless we love him and are spending time with him. We want to be transformed into the image of Jesus, to the image of the living God, guided by his Holy Spirit, 
and following his ways as instructed in his word, not in the box that we construct for him. And one of the ways that we are motivated or um, that really spur us on is to hear from one another how things are going, to hear stories of God's work in people's lives. When we do this, it's not what is said in, in the passage here, the beware, like don't share things that are good about your faith. Like it's saying don't preach empty with, without action. But we should share with one another our testimonies. We do it at baptism. We do it throughout the year in various forms. You might do it one-on-one or in small groups. But today I have permission to share some testimony of someone in our church who has encountered Jesus in the last number of years. And um, I've gotten to know Andrew Morant for the past few years as he's uh, now actually on our elders board. So he's encountered Jesus later in life. He's come to, to know him, to love him and follow him, to, to really put priorities in order to make Jesus his first priority. And I'm going to play a video now of Andrew Morant's, part of Andrew Morant's testimony. So let's watch. I'm Andrew Morant. My wife, Catherine Albertson, has been attending MRIC for the last uh, 20 plus years. I've been attending regularly for the past five. I came to Jesus uh, on my second trip through Alpha uh, with God working through Catherine and my church family's prayers. I got to say that God is so amazing. Uh, He's always working in our lives, whether we see it or not. Uh, Recently, he revealed an opportunity for me to truly feel uh, his love and transformation within me. I was laid off uh, from a job that I moved to in the past year after much prayer uh, in solitude as well as with my wife Catherine and folks from our church family. Uh, When I was told the news on a Friday afternoon, I didn't feel angry or bitter or defensive, shocked or even anxious. And these are emotions that I would have felt 1000% before coming to Christ. I was disappointed that I was unable to finish the work that I started with my team, but that was about it. What I felt and this was part of the transformation, was just God's complete peace, his loving hands around me, knowing that he had a plan for me, knowing that he is in control. Uh, He placed me in this previous role, and this experience really is part of his plan. Since the news, I've been blessed with time with my daughters who literally were just coming home from university. I've been able to do things here at the church and also in the community. Uh, to help folks, um, and I've been able to spend more time with God. Uh, Opportunities for new work or new employment for me, they're in play. I'm super excited to see what the Lord is doing and how he's working, where he's going to be taking me next. I came to God pretty recently, uh, and I just want to be able to share my testimony with folks here at the church or, or outside of the church. You know, the life that I left behind me, uh, the transformation that's happened through me in other aspects of my life, uh, and, and certainly truly being freed from addictions and, and, and the kind of things that we need to let go of. Uh, I would just ask that people please reach out to me whenever they like. I'd be delighted to meet up. I also encourage people to read Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34. It is powerful stuff. God's working. And that's just one story. We know there's lots of small stories, big stories, things that you're experiencing on a day-to-day basis. 
we need to share with that with one another. And so I actually have Nate, um, wherever Nate is. He's been starting to, he recorded that and put that together. So thanks, Nate, for doing that. And he wants to record more testimonies. So if the Lord is leading you to share what God is doing so that others can be encouraged to do the same and to, and to follow God, please see Nate. He's on worship today. You can talk to him after the service. Schedule a time to come and share all of your testimony, a part of your testimony, something that's happened. We'd love to encourage one another with that. But God is moving. God's working. He's taken this church in uh, not new places from, from our core beliefs, but he's taking us into new territory, and he's, he's uh, going to do amazing things in our future. And I'm not preaching anything new this morning. It's all the same stuff. It's all the same stuff that Jesus has been saying from day to one. Day one, get to know me, follow me, read about me in the word of God. I want to have a relationship with you. I want, to, I want you to bring yourself to me. Your image of, of God is on you. You bear God's image. You belong to him. So I hope that encourages us to, to walk deeper with Jesus. I'm going to pray for us and invite our youth band to lead us in an exciting song about uh, laying down our, 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 our lives for Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for these reminders in your scriptures that we can read about the life of Christ and, that, and this intense time of ministry where he came up against people who refuted his claims of being Messiah, but that he was able to basically be God to these people. He was, he was able to speak to them in a way that only God can. Help us to hear those words and be changed and transformed more into your image, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.